We know a remote farm in Lincolnshire where Mrs. Buckley lives. Every July, peas grow there. Do you really mean that? You are listening to the premiere episode of Airwaves Full of Bacon. The probably temporary, purely for the fun of it, Sky Full of Bacon audio podcast about food in Chicago. Produced by me, Michael Gebert, James Beard Award-winning food journalist and video maker of Sky Full of Bacon, key ingredient for the Chicago Reader, terminal editor of the late Grub Street Chicago, and so on. In this first episode, I'm going to visit a restaurant that lives on the roof of another restaurant, Homestead, which recently reopened for the season under new chef Chris Curran, who made a fried dill pickle salad at Stout Barrel House that still makes me giggle with delight. Turkey is a wonderful, fascinating country that is unfortunately going through some turmoil right now. I'll talk to a friend who was recently there about what he saw and ate, and, trivial though it may seem by comparison, tell you some of my favorite places for Turkish food in Chicago. And in the main event, I'll talk to Anthony Todd, food editor of Chicagoist, and not the new host of Check, Please. There's been a lot happening in food media in Chicago lately, and we're going to bemoan all of it. No, not really. The glass is totally a quarter full. So since this is the first episode, please self-indulge me for about one minute in explaining what this is about. It's only going to get better after that. Now, we all went into caring about food and writing about it and whatever, because it's fun, right? I mean, it's not politics, it's not closing down schools or figuring out why the parking meter deal is such a screwing. We went into it for the fun of being passionate and serious about something that is, at the same time, sociable and kind of frivolous. And, unless you really do it wrong, nobody's going to die from it. But this has not exactly been a fun season for food journalism. Outlets for food journalism have been disappearing quickly in the last couple of months. Anthony Todd and I will talk about that in a little bit, but even in the few days since we recorded that conversation, another one, Louisa Chu's food blog at WBEZ, bit the dust. The number of places to talk at all seriously about food in Chicago, and the number of people who get paid to do so, shrank substantially in a short period, and the whole scene feels rather glum at the moment. But this is also 2013. It's hard to get paid for things, but easier than ever to just do them and have people find out about them. So that's what Airwaves Full of Bacon is all about. I just feel like playing with audio for a while, talking with chefs, talking with other food writers, having fun again with the idea of food. I don't know how long it's going to last, but it's going now. Because after all that's happened... I'm heading toward Roots Handmade Pizza on Division, but that's not my final destination. For that, I have to go upstairs. Hi. Homestead? Homestead? Yeah. If you just walk down that hall right there, you'll see on the right-hand side the stairs leading up. Up here I find another restaurant, Homestead. 
in which tables are scattered among a rooftop garden of lettuce, kale, and herbs. In the summer, at least, diners will dine under the stars and a floor up from the buses, next to the produce that could end up in their meal. Chris Curran, chef of Blue 13 and later Stout Barrel House, joined the restaurant group that owns both Roots and Homestead earlier this year. His first task is to revamp Homestead, with the hope of making a seasonal restaurant a year-round one. A year-round one in Chicago. We're a farm-to-table restaurant. Um, I think that's kind of a funny term, because every restaurant technically is farm-to-table. But uh, we take that whole movement and kind of took it one step further with the garden and then uh, the farm that we just acquired in, in Michigan, which is really exciting for us. So what are you growing up here on the rooftop? Right now we've got, um, we've got some English peas that are starting to sprout along the fence line. We've got uh, Swiss chard, uh, Brussels sprouts, kale. We've got some tomatoes that were just planted because some spinach that we had planted didn't really take. Now, how much are you using right now? Because, I mean, it's been such a cold spring. A lot of it's pretty short still. Oh, yeah. I mean, we, we haven't really utilized too much of, of our garden yet. Um, most of the things that we have in there are going to be one harvest, um, and then we're done with it. Um, we should have another planting coming along probably in a few weeks uh, when we harvest the first round, hopefully, as long as the weather kind of cooperates. So. So at this point, it's more kind of decorative of the concept than you're really serving it. Right, at this point it is, but as the summer goes along, we'll utilize it more and more. Um, you know, it's a thousand square foot rooftop garden, which sounds big, but when you actually look at it, you know, it's nowhere near being able to produce any, enough to, to support what we do here. But then you have a farm. So. Yeah, we just acquired a farm um, in Michigan, uh, a friend of our owner bought it out of bankruptcy, um, and he's really into sustainable agriculture, which we are also, um, and wants to use it kind of as a, a tool to teach sustainability and growing your own food and uh, how easy it is and knowing where your food comes from. Um, so this summer we plan on doing some farm dinners out there to help raise the funds to really get it up and running. Um, it's in some pretty rough shape right now. It was a animal farm for a long time, so um, that's good and bad. It means that the soil has a lot of nutrient value um, from the waste products of the animals that were raised there. Um, but it's got some pretty beat-up land that we need to uh, renovate. Um, we're going to also add greenhouses into it so that we can uh, grow year-round or almost year-round. We're doing uh, aquaponics there, which is uh, similar to hydroponics, but it incorporates fish. So we'll be raising uh, trout and tilapia, um, which aerate the water. Then that water goes in and feeds the plants. And since both of those fish are vegetarians, we can use the plant life to feed the fish. And it just kind of creates this ecosystem that supports itself. Now, the homestead was just seasonal last year. I mean, it was open from what? July. July to about October. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what's, but it sounds like you're going to try and go year-round now? We're hoping to. Um, You know, we've got a beautiful indoor space as well as the garden and and the patio, which was the big draw last year. Um, You know, our goal is to really try to get people to, to 
embrace the interior space as well. Um, it's, a, it's a beautiful space. It gives us an opportunity to continue doing what, what we do here on a year-round basis. And we've got some plans for the patio um, to kind of hopefully help draw people in. Um, we plan on putting fire pits out there during the winter time, um, and you know, having people go out and enjoy uh, warm alcoholic beverage at the end of their meal. Uh, you know, with blankets and sitting around a fire in the same beautiful setting that we've got right now. You came here not just for this restaurant, but uh, you joined the 50-50 group, I think, for developing further things down the road. What, not that I expect you to say what you know, the next five restaurants are going to be, sure. but uh, what do you see the path for, for that? What do you want to do? Um, well, when I, when I first started meeting with Greg and Scott, the owners, 50 and 50, they're both originally from Let Us Entertain You, and their goal is to take 50-50 in roots which are very easily replicatable concepts and, and do those over and over again, which is a very lettuce entertain you style of, of thinking. Um, and they both said that they realized that that's kind of where they peak at, at their understanding of menu development and um, uh, running restaurants and being able to design them. And they want to go in a different direction also. We want to kind of split it off, split off the company into two different branches. Um, and they brought me, Chris Teixeira, our uh, pastry chef for the bakery, and Benjamin Schiller, obviously our beverage director, um, for Homestead and for Berkshire Room. And they want to kind of do one-of-a-kind restaurant concepts down the road with the, with the three of us who have more fine dining background, more understanding of what it takes um, from a, from a service aspect to a, to a food aspect um, and an uh, environmental aspect. So, you know, what's to come, we haven't really gotten that far. I mean, I think Homestead last year was a huge step for them. Um, and the Berkshire Room is going to be amazing at the Acme Hotel. We're actually working. It's funny, we opened up Homestead on Thursday and we opened up Berkshire uh, well, we opened up the bakery down at the hotel today, and we're opening up the Berkshire Room on the 25th so um, of June. So it's, it's been a whirlwind. I've been here for about a month and opening up three places in another month. So, um, But, you know, we're focusing on that, and it's, it's really exciting, and I think, I think we're going to turn a lot of heads with, uh, with Benjamin's beverage program down there. And right as we're talking about him, Ben Schiller walks in for the day. We invite him over to talk about the cocktail program. Um, my drinks are purely meant to complement his food and complement uh, the setting that they're in. You know, this is largely a rooftop restaurant with a large patio space. It's going to be utilized in hot summer months, so the cocktails both have to be refreshing and have a good acid content uh, to cleanse your palate in between Chris's courses. Boca, the cocktails are more like bookends. They were meant to be drunk before you sit down or after you uh, finish paying your check um, um, after your meal. So almost aperitif at the beginning and then uh, like a strong um, whiskey flavor at the end. Instead of having like a armagnac or cognac or Newport scotch, you might have a sore sipping fruity cocktail. But mostly, the, most cocktails here have light spirits. Uh, we do have just one cocktail 
that's been barrel-aged or has a barrel-aged spirit. Um, the rest of them, tequila, uh, unaged, um, a white rum, a couple of gins, a couple of vodkas, a mezcal. So you're not getting those heavier uh, barrel notes, notes of caramel and brown sugar and spice and vanilla, obviously. Um, you're getting the other flavors there, botanicals, floral ingredients, citrus ingredients, uh, flavors of the soil. Although I did have the, uh, the other night, I had the, what's the thing with the tobacco? Weston. Yeah. The Weston. That right. cocktail, it, it doesn't matter if it's 100 degrees outside and you're sitting down for your first course with just ceviche. People just love that thing. And, and no matter what the setting, no matter what the type of day or, or what time of day it is, um, you know, people order that cocktail. So even though it doesn't fit uh, Chef Kern's food as well as other ones do, our, our job is still to make the guests happy keep them here, keep them coming back, and that cocktail does it, so that's why it's on the list. So describe it, what, what is it exactly? The cocktail itself is kind of a um, amalgamation of all the flavors on my day off. Usually I go to the Star Lounge in the morning to get an espresso. Um, in the afternoon, I like to order Thai food from one of the Thai restaurants in my neighborhood. End of the night, usually I have a cigar or a pipe and a, a glass of whiskey. And it's hard to think about, you know, if you think of like Thai flavors, you think about some curry, think of uh, cassia cinnamon, kalangal, um, the espresso, obviously you have the coffee notes there, and then you have tobacco and whiskey, I started thinking, you know, all those flavors make a lot of sense together. So I put together this, this drink in a pretty simple format um, that kind of puts all those flavors in, in uh, one glass. Homestead is located upstairs from Roots Handmade Pizza, 1924 West Chicago Avenue. I'm no expert on Turkey, only been there as a tourist for a week. But you don't have to be an expert on a place to fall in love with it instantly. Turkey is a fascinating, friendly, eastern and western all at once country, with great, simple, fresh food. And, unfortunately, it's also one that's in the middle of riots and political turmoil. My friend Dan Schleifer, a Chicagoan currently working in Virginia, was just there, and experienced both the riots and the food. I was supposed to get in Friday night, which, as it works out, um, actually was really good. Friday night was uh, the, the night that the protests really uh, kicked up, and the police came out in mass with their uh, tear gas and, uh, and water cannons. And so the fact that I ended up spending a night in Bucharest uh, actually worked out for me in that I got in Saturday morning instead of Friday night. Un unfortunately, when I got in... All of the transportation had been shut down into the city. So the shuttle buses, the metro, everything to prevent people from flooding into the city center to protest. So I, uh, I shared a cab into the city with a, a nice uh, Turkish woman who spoke fantastic English and was able to translate for the, the taxi driver. But unfortunately, the, the neighborhood I was staying in, I was staying in an Airbnb, uh, the neighborhood was right dead center in the middle of the protests. And so the cab driver said... I can get you close, but I can't get you there. And so he dropped me off as close as he could get me to where I was staying, and I quickly realized why he couldn't get me to where I was staying was because there was rubble, broken glass, and quite literally piles of furniture and garbage in the middle of streets and alleys set ablaze uh, to provide barriers from the, the police coming in. So you would turn from what looked like, not just what looked like, but what was a a charming, quaint, 
bohemian feeling, uh, you know, cobblestone street with cafes, and you would turn around a corner and there would literally be a line of, of police in full riot gear descending. Uh, it was really a very surreal experience uh, for your first morning in a particular country. Can I, can I get some yogurt or, you know, like, where do I, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just here for the coffee, um, you know, and so, uh, so anyway, I, I managed to kind of find my way around and then um, kind of got out of the area where uh, a lot of the protests were going on and uh, settled down at a little cafe and had delicious, uh, uh, you know, couple cups of coffee, chatting with a Swiss couple that was there on vacation as well. They were just finishing up their trip and uh, really just, I mean, you could have been on a side street in Paris, you know, just beautiful little sidewalk cafe and uh, quiet, quiet little alley. And, uh, and all of a sudden, uh, a stampede of people comes uh, just racing down the, uh, down the alley. You know, I don't know, maybe three, four hundred people just at full on speed. And then they clear out, right? They're just racing through and then they clear out. And in the cafe, we're all kind of looking around at each other, just trying to figure out what the hell just happened. And then as I look up the end of the street, I see the line of riot police in full gear with gas masks and the, the big um, plexiglass shields, you know, I mean, just exactly what you would see in a, a movie, uh, appear at the end of the alley and start marching down the alley. Um, but there are no protesters there anymore. It's just us sitting in this cafe. Um, but they decide to shoot tear gas canisters down anyway. And so the this line of riot police just starts lobbing tear gas canisters. They shoot them out of what looks like a shotgun, um, filling the whole street and this cafe with just a thick cloud of tear gas. And uh, so everybody in the cafe runs inside, um, but of course all the windows are open, it's a beautiful day, and so we all get hit by tear gas just for happen to, you know, being sitting in the wrong alley at the wrong time. Turkish coffee best enjoyed with goggles and a gas mask, <laughs> um, but, uh, but, you know, take it however you can get it. So, um, apart from being tear-gassed, how was, how was the food generally? Yeah, I mean, the food was great. I think, um, you know, the, I can't say that I had a tremendous amount of exposure to Turkish food before, right? Living in Chicago, there are a few Turkish restaurants, uh, you know, Cafe Orchid and, and others, and I always kind of enjoyed it, but I can't say that I knew that much about it. Um, and all of the things that you expect to be really, really good um, are in fact really, really good. I think what, what surprised me was the things I had never heard of, never seen, or never come across. Um, notably, uh, this thing called an uh, Islak, I don't know how my pronunciation is there, but an Islak hamburger, which apparently tr- translates to a wet hamburger. Um, and this is, this is late-night drunk food, uh, but late-night drunk Turkish food that I had never heard of before. Um, and uh, and basically, in areas that have uh, a lot of a lot of bars and nightlife, uh, you have these places that have the big you know rotisserie spits going with uh, um, you know with chicken for uh, um, uh, kebabs or you know what have you. Uh, but they have these enclosed kind of glass boxes that are all steamy with a heat lamp in the middle, stacked up with hamburgers inside. And so it's this kind of, uh, I can only describe it as a cheap, white, squishy bun with a small but flavorful burger patty, all kind of drenched and sopping in some sort of a red tomato-based kind of sauce. Uh, Maybe has a little bit of a hint of like cinnamon or some sort of warm spice. 
um, and uh, and just sitting there steaming away. And so you buy them, they're about a buck, buck and a quarter each, and eat them standing out in the street. And and they're satisfyingly wet and mushy. Anything else that you found in restaurants or stands or anything? Absolutely. So there's this thing, and, and you're going to have to pardon me while I go and Google the name and the pronunciation. It's a, a, a red mush. So I believe it's made from bulgur and possibly tomatoes and some sort of uh, chili pepper like isat um, or one of the chilies that they use there. And it's basically, you come across these, uh, these stands um, in the street and they're just like little carts with a plexiglass window around them and a pile of like greens, like lettuce and parsley and that kind of stuff, a pile of lemons, and then right in the center, a giant red mound of dense mush. And, and I had no idea what it was, um, but I was curious. And like I said, I, I don't speak Turkish. He didn't speak English. So I just kind of pointed and asked for one. And he unrolled um, a very thin, almost like tortilla-thin kind of, of uh, flour-based wrapper um, and took some of this red paste and smeared it along it and then squeezed it with lemon juice, put on some uh, broken up just romaine lettuce and a bunch of fresh parsley, uh, drizzled it with pomegranate molasses, and then rolled it up, wrapped it in a piece of paper and handed it to me. It was ridiculously cheap. I mean, it couldn't have been more than 50 cents and just delicious. I, let me let me Google it real quick and tell you what it's called. Sig Kofti. I have no idea if that's the correct correct pronunciation, but it's called Sig Kofti. And it just has this really kind of uh, interesting texture. And the pomegranate molasses adds a little bit of sweet and a little bit of sour and the lemon juice and then the crunch of the greens and the freshness of the parsley. They're a really great street food snack. All right, thanks. Okay, take care. Bye. Dan mentioned Cafe Orchid, and Chicago, in fact, has several Turkish restaurants, which give you some idea of the kind of food he was talking about. Cafe Orchid is one I'd recommend, a kind of ramshackle family restaurant at Addison and Ravenswood. It has an outdoor screened-in patio, which feels very much like the kind of restaurants you find by the water in a place like Istanbul or Izmir. All it's lacking is a bunch of drunk Australians. Anyway, a dish I really like there, though it's a hearty or maybe heartburny kind of meal, is called Iskender Kebab. It's donor meat, which is, you know, grilled lamb like gyros, in a tart yogurt sauce with very acidic tomato sauce and bread cubes all kind of mixed together. Kind of like a deconstructed deep dish pizza. Speaking of pizza, go straight north to Irving Park in Ravenswood, and you'll find a little place called Pide Vilamakun. Pide and Lamakun are both kind of flatbreads similar to pizza, pide in particular. It's a football-shaped pie, no tomato sauce. And if you want to be bold, order it with Turkish pastrami, which is a puckeringly salty cured beef. Now, I don't travel enough to normally be the guy who says, oh, this is just like they do it in Cappadocia. But we did go to Cappadocia, and pide is pretty much all there is to eat there. So this is just like they do it in Cappadocia. Now, I've got the addresses for both of these recommendations, plus Dan's pictures of wet Turkish hamburgers and other things, at skyfullofbacon.com. And if you have a question about where to find something, or where to find the best of something, or whatever you want to ask, leave it at skyfullofbacon.com, or email me from the link that you'll find there, and maybe I can answer it on a future show. 
Is the food media moment over? In Chicago, at least? That's one way of interpreting the sudden, red-wedding-like decimation of outlets for thoughtful, not merely PR-driven, food coverage in Chicago. To commiserate and contemplate the future of food media, to the depressing tune of the music behind me, I invited Anthony Todd, food editor of Chicagoist, to chat about the food scene of early 2013. We'll also talk about a story where he kicked up some dust, the latest four-star review of Next in the Chicago Tribune, and about a chef who just popped up with his third major profile, not counting his own autobiography, in the Chicago Reader last week. Media, it's going away. We had way more food media in Chicago a couple of months ago than we do now. Yeah, it's a massacre. It's a massacre. What's going on out there? How can it be stopped? I don't know what's going on. It seems that no one's willing to pay for something despite the fact that there's demonstrated demand. And this is why I'm always confused whenever a food media site closes. Just like with Time Out Chicago, it never seems to be that it's because people aren't reading it or aren't looking at it. It's just something happens and people don't want to spend the money anymore. So I think in some ways, it's almost a money problem that those of us who are content producers don't quite know what the heck is going on. Because we're making interesting content, people are telling us they're reading our interesting content, and suddenly we no longer have jobs. Well, I think one of the things, too, is people are reading it, but maybe not enough people are reading it. I mean, the numbers are never really that big. The question with that is, were the numbers ever really that big? For I mean, for a newspaper, and you know, a million people may read a newspaper, how many people read a review within a newspaper? No one knows. Exactly. And you never know whether the fact that we had jobs at all, or that I still have a job, thank goodness, are predicated on the tail end of the internet bubble that no one's figured out how to pay for. So it may be that all of us were just living on borrowed time and borrowed money, and that now this is all shaking itself out in the wash. And what we're going to see in two years is actually what the market will bear. And what we've seen for the last five years was all fake. It was some freakish thing like uh, services that would deliver you, deliver you one uh, hostess cherry pie for you know a buck seventy nine driving across town on a scooter to bring it to you. I feel like I've gotten press release for something like that in the last <laughs> yeah. couple of weeks. Well, I, yeah, I lived through all that in the dot com era when uh, you know how are you going to make money delivering one roll of toilet paper volume? <laughs> you know, but <laughs> advertising, advertising on the on, side of on, the mobile. On, yeah, yeah, that's going to do it. At least none of the ones that died died for a reason that had anything to do with Chicago particularly. I mean, it's I don't think it's like. Guess what? It turned out we're a bad food market or bad market for food media. The Sun Times has newspaper problems. Lots of newspapers have newspaper problems. Time out. It seems that their investors were ready to cash out of that, which could have happened any time. You know, Grub Street Chicago died because it was owned by New York Magazine, and they suddenly woke up one day and knew that Chicago wasn't actually part of New York. So <laughs> funny um, how that works. Yeah. Um, so. We're still, we still should be a food media town. We just don't know how to do anything about it and make money at it. This is the thing that confuses me, right? Is that our food scene is better than ever. Nothing has happened except the food scene keeps getting better. And we keep getting more famous chefs and more outstanding restaurants. And yet fewer and fewer people to write about it. Fewer and fewer people to write about it, despite the fact that there seem to be more and more people interested in food who want to read about it or watch about it or listen to it or whatever it happens to be. So there's a strange disconnect that I hear all the time when I talk to foodies who consume lots of food media and they suddenly have all these blank spots in their RSS reader and there are no new things popping up to fill the blank spots in the RSS reader or the new things that are popping up aren't things they want to consume. They're more lifestyle, they're more gossip, 
there are things that may draw clicks from a certain kind of person, but not the same people who are reading the things that have disappeared. Right, because, I mean, we did get new things within the last year. So, I mean, DNA Info is new. Zagat's blog was new. Um, Sometimes Splash is a new kind of thing that was different from what they were doing with the food section before. Right? There are some of us who used to work for it who are working for them, but it's not the same thing. So we're not writing the same sorts of material. Right, so evolution is going along all the time. At the same time, I mean, it, it seemed like there was a certain sort of critical voice about the scene that went away. Um, I, I think, you know, Time Out and Grub Street certainly were both things that had a perspective that wasn't, you know, let's let's put the press release up. I mean, not that I didn't do plenty of that. But we all have to. But I mean, I, as someone who struggles to have that voice too, and also occasionally put up press releases, I definitely feel the pressure to not say anything day after day after day after day. And I think the thing that's sad about the media that we lost was that it was media that said something that actually said something unique, that had a voice, that had something to say, that you would go to that piece of media for a particular kind of thing. And I think that more and more the media that we have left is becoming somewhat interchangeable, which seems paradoxical, right? Because you'd think the things that you want to keep paying for would be the things that have a unique audience that really loves them. Like, I really love DNA Info, or I really love Zagat, and they have some brand loyalty. But I must admit, I find that the ones that remain, partially because they do a lot of the same stories, are kind of interchangeable. Well, and that's a problem that came, too, from having so many of them pop up within the last few years. I mean, even at a fast pace of restaurant openings, there aren't 20 openings a day, uh, and everybody can write about a different one. If somebody opens something, you're going to read about it in every place that exists. And it was one of the things at Grub Street that I was trying to do less of at the end just because I felt, you know, that's plenty covered. And I would rather... Talk to the guy whose restaurant opened a year ago. I mean, the things that I look back proud about are, you know, it's like talking to the guys at Two, which is a really nice neighborhood restaurant. Got kind of mediocre reviews at first and maybe wasn't that good at first. But you go to it after a year and they've hit their stride and it's a nice place. But I understand totally the pressure, you know, Parsons Fish and Chicken open. Do you understand, Anthony? Parsons Fish and Chicken open. Apparently they're in a grony slushy. They have slushy and we're not drinking. How are you not covering that this minute, Anthony? I should be there right now standing You should be there. I haven't actually been to Parsons Chicken. I, I have not either. I feel ashamed to admit it on a microphone, but I haven't <laughs> been there yet. But no, I feel exactly the same way. One of the ways I think about it is that people read publications or writers. And I think in our particular business, it tends a lot to be writers because they have particular geeky ways of approaching food that the reader connects with, that a certain set of readers connect with. And so whether it be the fact that I tend to skew Chicago is towards sustainability stuff and my obsession with canning and whatever it might be, cocktail writing, because that's what I do a lot of, or when you would do things like going back to restaurants that had been there for a while, or other people who are geeky about other things. Some people are really geeky about gossip and they really want to know every movement of every chef. But as more and more people depart the scene, that voice they have, that chunk of geekiness that they have leaves with them. And some of the things that are replacing them don't have an identifiable thing that you would say, well, I go here for this. I know if I read DNA Info, I'm going to get this kind of thing, either because in the case of DNA Info, they are intentionally homogenized, very good, but intentionally using sort of a newspapery voice that doesn't have that, or because they're run by people who 
either haven't been in the scene long enough or who aren't very foodie and then don't have that kind of geeky voice. They just don't have something. They're good writers and they're interesting, but they don't have that same love of something in particular that draws in readers. So I think or that's missing. We didn't have that voice necessarily on our first no, days. No, we certainly didn't either. I mean, we you, certainly you discovered that. I mean, I certainly didn't either, but what's, what that was, that's what's making me sad, right, is you see people who have done all this work and who have put all this time into developing expertise, and they are suddenly unemployed. And this is what's happening in the rest of the journalism world, too. But in the food world, particularly, it means you have an underserved set of consumers. Unlike in the news world, where it's a much more existential reason as to why it's important that these veteran reporters stay around, it's very political and important and complicated and out in the ether. In the food world, it's very simple. If you don't have veteran reporters who can say, this is all glitz and glamour and not good food, or this celebrity chef is sleeping at the wheel and they're putting out junk, as opposed to someone who says, Parsons chicken and fish, it's amazing! the consumer is actually not being well served. It's not just that we don't get to sing our geeky song on the internet. It's that people who spend a lot of money on food and who want to spend a lot of money on food don't have as good of a sense of what to do with that money. Right. And I think even, um, you know, there may be PR people out there who see this as, oh, thank God, the, the annoying people who, who <laughs> slam stuff, uh, you know, are are gone. But I I think mostly not, and you're shaking your head. I've heard exactly the opposite, because I've, I've had a lot of conversations after about the third martini, when PR people get honest after the third martini. I've had a lot of conversations with them where they are much more worried in some ways than we are, especially we who are still employed, because they say, well, damn it, if I can't pitch this to anyone, I don't have clients, right? I, I can't go back to my client and say, I got this many media mentions if there's no media to get mentioned in. And frankly, the replacement that they've come up with, which is this sort of vague idea that there are tastemakers out there who have Twitter influence or social media influence or something, a personal blog. When you go back to the restaurant owner and say, well, I brought 10 tastemakers in this week, they say, well, give me the newspaper or give me the magazine. And the PR person says, well, I can't because that's not how it works. I can't even point you to the blog post because it's not how it works. So I think the PR people far from saying, oh, at least we don't have to deal with that obnoxious Mike Gebert, are saying, we have nowhere to tell the stories that we want to tell. Right, and it should be the moment for blogs, except the moment for blogs passed already. So, exactly. um, I mean, I certainly saw that the interest in what I'm doing on my blog went way down as my Twitter numbers went way up. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that the de that really happened on my watch at Grub Street was the comment section died. Same thing has happened with because, Chicago. It, because no it all goes on Twitter. Everybody has that conversation immediately on Twitter as opposed to put up a comment and come back six hours later to see who called you a douchebag for saying that. One, if you look at the big Gawker websites, the reason why I imagine that they've been going through all the crazy content systems with Kinja and all the other stuff they've been trying to roll out is similarly to allay the decrease in comments because every blog out there is having the same problem. We used to talk about the Eater comment section. The Eater comment section still has something going on, but it's nowhere near as crazy because people will just yell at Daniel on Twitter. They don't need to scream and yell about it on the Eater comment section and be harassed by people. Why bother? No one can harass you on your own Twitter because you can just ignore them. But I do like going back and reading those old ones to find out which chefs are drunks. <laughs> it's the only way to find some of these things out. They're certainly not going to tell us the media. My other big problem is the death of critics, right? But can we talk about the death of critics? Yes, that is, was next on the agenda. Do you want to do an introduction to your question with the death of critics? Anthony will I'll now talk a, about I'll, the death no, of critics. No, you could. Oh. I'll take well, a drink of water. I was, I was going to specifically mention next getting its 217th four-star review. Um, 
But beyond that, I don't know. Talk about the death of critics. What what did you want to get into? I mean, for me, it's not even about Next. And this is when I wrote that piece about Next that made everyone angry. It wasn't about Next and it wasn't even about the critic. It was about resource allocation. It was a very economics kind of thing. My UFC-ness is coming out. In that if there's only a limited number of critic units, you know, if we number of restaurants a critic can review in a week, if there's a limited number of critic units and that number is decreasing rapidly, restaurants aren't going to get their allocation. Right? Some restaurant isn't going to get one because we're reviewing next 700 times. This week, Phil Vitell decided to go back and review MK on its 15th anniversary. Now, MK is about to undergo a major renovation, but it hasn't happened yet. They're about to change their menu, but it hasn't happened yet. And their chef has been the same for what, a decade? And so that's, for me, bad use, bad allocation of critic time. It's not that I don't want to read it. It was a well-written review. It's just 10 restaurants opened this week. The other, the other thing for me with Vitella Next, and, you know, again, he's, he's sort of under the spotlight of this because everybody else went away. It's kind of not his fault. Certainly not. <laughs> that, that, and that's, that's why happened. I never want to rip apart or to rip on Vitell. It's not that Vitell isn't a wonderful writer. He's been a fixture of the scene. He has a job. He deserves his job. That's not the point. The point is that Vitell's role has stayed exactly the same, and the media landscape has changed around him. And so what we need him for maybe, in my opinion, has changed, and I don't think he's going to change to meet it. Now, is it his responsibility to change his whole style to meet my esoteric needs? Maybe not, but no one else is meeting those needs either. Or the Tribune could change how it approaches things. And I guess that's one of my real questions is, you know, should the whole nature of reviewing change in some fashion? You know, they add, I mean, they've always kind of had the cheap eats thing. Monica Eng used to do it. Um, Now, you know, Kevin Pang shows up a couple of times a month reviewing some Mexican place. And, you know, it's interesting as far as it goes, but it leaves 13,312 remaining other Mexican places in Chicago that are untouched. Yes. And that's that's kind of the issue is just that there's, you know, here's this this big world and who's really chipping away at it and, and finding, you know, it's much more happening on the amateur level uh, than it is, you know, sort of the, the, the body of you know, current and exiled LTH people and things like that, then, you know, then anybody, you know, working away at that and creating the database of that. And it's interesting because for me, I'm less, I sort of cut it at a slightly different spot. So I think the amateur stuff has its value, um, especially something like LTH where it's not star rating on Yelp. It's people who have at least some level of enthusiasm, whether their expertise level varies, they have some level of enthusiasm. They're not going to be the people who go in and are like, well, this wasn't perfect on the first try, so I'm never going to talk about it ever again. They, they'll get into a dialogue about it, and that ends up being useful often. Right. Sometimes not. You'll see. But... I'm also not mad at the highest-end critics who I think are still anonymous, paid for by their newspaper or publication, that sort of thing. The thing that gets me are the sort of mid-level professionals. And it's I'm one of those mid-level professionals, and you are one of those mid-level professionals, and we don't have dining budgets. And it's really hard when you don't have a dining budget to maintain a perspective as a consumer, to go in and not be wowed by the fact that you've got free food and a bunch of martinis and everyone's schmoozing with you and things are great. And the number of articles where I've been at a dinner, a media dinner with someone, and I've gotten served poisonous food, and I've read their account of it the next day, 
and it's like we were in different rooms. And it's not because they're false. It's not because they're fraudulent or bad people or whatever. It's because it's really hard when you're bombarded with adulation 24 hours a day in a very specific slice of life to maintain any objectivity at all. And so for me, the part of the food media that makes me uncomfortable in a world where there are no critics is that world where everything is great. Where everything is great and everything is happy because they gave you lots of fancy wine. And that's not serving the consumer very well either. Right. And the other part of that is even, you know, even if you weren't taking freebies, unless you have a full-time job as a critic, you have to do other kinds of coverage. Exactly. Having to do other kinds of coverage means you have to go actually meet these people. You know, you you have to go, you know, talk to Jared Van Camp before the opening of Nelcoat. And that becomes very awkward if you turn out not to like Nelcoat three months later. Uh, which, by the way, I like Nelcoat. Okay, Jared, I'm using you as an example. It's I love okay. Jared, and I actually don't particularly like Nelcoat, so that works out really oh well. God, I know they're going to shoot me because it's 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 just it's too loud and too sceny and too white and white. I don't mean racially; I mean the inside. It's too much <laughs> no, it's, for me. It's probably, <laughs> also racially. It's probably, it's probably that white inside. Uh, no, too. it's just it's just a little too much for me. But no, I see what you're saying. It's very difficult to have that sort of multi multi face multifaceted. It's difficult to have that sort of multifaceted coverage, and yet be a critic. You can do it, but you have to have a very thick skin and you have to have a very particular type of personality where once again, we could you can look at someone and say to them, "You know what? The things you told me you were going to do, some of them worked and some of them didn't, and I'm an honest and respected respectful person, and here's what I think about it." And there aren't a lot of writers who can do that. A lot of writers feel indebted to people for stories. They very rightly, in the world of exclusives and PR, feel that if they say anything critical, they'll suddenly lose all their access. I happen to think that's not necessarily true, but I totally understand why they feel that way. They feel like their livelihood's on the line. If they say this restaurant sucks, they'll never get into that restaurant group's next four openings. I've certainly felt the chill that followed a certain certain thing. Now, I think the chefs that I want to work with are the chefs who can take criticism and improve from it. I think that's the value of an intelligent critic who's not just throwing poison darts, is that they can say something that the chef can read, and instead of going into tears, the chef can say, gosh, I guess on the other side of the kitchen door, this isn't playing as well as I thought it was going to play. And that's also really useful. It's not just for the consumers, it's for restaurants. You were talking about two. Maybe some of those reviews of two helped to get better. So specifically to Next, um, to set that up, Anthony wrote a piece which quoted me um, about Phil Vitell reviewing Next for the eighth time. I think seven of those have been four-star reviews. Only the time in you got a three-star review, if I recall He's that so correctly. critical. Um, well, it's Next. I mean, and, and that's it's the best. It's one of the things that, that becomes hard to do. With You know, what are you going to pick away at, at Next? I mean, some of it... You're not going to like something, but that's maybe because you don't like that sort of thing. Uh, you know, who knows? It's it's just sort of built into their whole concept that they're doing this very eclectically themselves take on all these things and doing it wonderfully. And that's yeah. awesome. I mean, for me, it shouldn't be a review. It's not that it shouldn't be covered. It deserves coverage, and more importantly, 
we have to be realistic. People want to read this stuff. People right. do. And that was the response of the trip to my piece is people want to read this stuff. And I said, right. absolutely. People want to read this stuff. It doesn't have to be a review. Don't give it any stars. Just say, look, we went and had this new menu at Next. Here's a photo gallery of every dish. Here's some insightful things that our food expert had to say who didn't go anonymously. So whatever, we assume it's going to be three or four stars because it's Next. It's not news. Right? You can write that in addition to your regular review for the week. Well, and that was one of the things too. It's like, what do you gain from... Vitell reviewing Next every three or four months and saying it's wonderful each time versus some sort of summing up or something. I don't know. Um, I mean, I feel like I would like at this point to read someone's take on, you know, what have the eight menus of Next so far amounted to much more than I want to read that the, the newest one is great. Well, and I also think, I mean, Grant Ackett's on Twitter objected to your piece in part saying it's a completely different restaurant each time and i think that's you know i I hate to tell the guy who owns the restaurant but i think that's completely untrue i and i think it would be a much less interesting place if that were true because you could just hire a hall and bring in japanese guys to make a japanese meal and that would be different every time when you replace them with guys from sicily but that's it doesn't it doesn't have any of the personality that we look for from chefs like like Ackett's and Barron. To me, it's much more interesting. I mean, like there's, there was in the Kyoto menu, they did a thing where a thin little piece of meat is put on a hot, hot rock and you cook it there yourself. And that returned in next the in the hunt menu. Um, it was a different piece of meat, but the same you did the same thing to it. And to me, it's much more interesting that something from the Japanese menu informed the next menu than thinking, oh, well, they're doing that again. To me, it is interesting to see those things come back. I mean, Baron loves those purple sweet potatoes. I don't know why. I don't, I don't think they're that great, but the color, the color is cool, and they are used artfully. And, okay, if that's one of your themes, great. Let's, let's, see, how, let's see what you do with that each time. Exactly. I love one of the reasons I like the idea behind Next, and I think this is a reason a lot of people object to the idea behind Next, is I like the artificiality of it. And by artificiality, I specifically mean that they're not renting a hall and bringing in Japanese people and Thai people and Sicilians to to make these dishes. That they're saying, look, we acknowledge we are not any of those ethnic groups. And we are not going to try to perfectly replicate exactly what you would get in a restaurant in Kyoto because we can't because we're white guys and we didn't grow up there. But we're going to do in this sort of almost reality television-esque way, we're going to create this menu in a limited period of time. We're going to come up with something amazing and we're going to bring all our talents to bear on it over and over and over again. That's why Next is special, not because it completely flips every time, because it doesn't. The same faces are in the kitchen, the same preparations show up, and more importantly, it's in the same space. Consumers do not think of it as a completely different restaurant every time. They think of it as a new menu, and I'm not sure that consumers know that it's a different menu and think of it any differently than any other restaurant that totally revamps its menu. Restaurants change menus all the time. They're still the same restaurant. Next does it in a hyper-active way, but it's still the same restaurant. Well, and early on, before it even opened, Ackett's said something to me about not wanting to be, to be Disney-esque. And, you know, you're you're a big Disney geek, so you know exactly what we're talking about yeah, this here. isn't Epcot. This isn't World Showcase at Epcot. Right, and I think they're, they know that there's a, a thin line there to not, you know, not suddenly fill the place with waitresses and dirndls for the Swiss menu, you know, but to evoke each of these things in in a certain sort of heightened aesthetic way that's that's 
this artificial. But I think they're doing themselves. It's interesting. I think they're doing themselves a disservice towards that end by claiming it's a different restaurant every time. Because part of what makes it not Epcot is that it's the same guys acknowledging, look, we're the same guys, we're white guys, we're chefs who cook in a particular way, and we're trying these new things out over and over and over again. And I think rather than the chef coming on and saying, no, it's totally different every time, if I was the chef, I would come on and say, nope, it's the same thing every time, and look how awesome we are that we can take the same thing every time and turn out something so radically different. Because after all, it's a small world. (laughs) I can't believe you just said that. Brandon Balsley is a sort of Chicago chef. Although sort of chef, sort of Chicago. <laughs> because he's mostly been working in Pittsburgh lately. And he's opening a place in, what is it, Michigan City, Indiana? Um, Somewhere on a farm. Yeah. Uh, within reasonable same-day driving distance of Chicago. And it's going to be farm and table in the same place, apparently. And But as you say... He's famous for his book. He's famous for, I, I would say, three restaurants that he never actually worked at. At uh, least three restaurants. Right. He, 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 he did not uh, actually work at Alinea. He moved. He went on from there to not actually reopen Motto. And then he did not open Tribute, which was not the biggest opening of the year, as the back of his book would tell you. Uh, what did happen was that uh, well, details right was that, was that the original one I think, well I don't know whether it was magazine details. zero was details I don't know if it was details or that trig profile which one was it uh, I can't remember I'll anyway, accept that it was details details um, wrote this uh, it's going to be like WNIB with dogs barking in the background <laughs> um, the, uh, so details wrote this piece uh, about him as the quintessential bad boy chef lots of pictures with knives and blood spattering and the and kind of stuff that his ample tattooing and then Kevin Pang uh, wrote interesting to compare the two because the details piece was very much about you know rock and roll bad boy behavior Kevin Pang you know brought out the violins for a tale of him going into rehab which apparently didn't last was already over by the time the piece came out but what's interesting to me about both of those and this gets me both times is that both authors missed an opportunity to actually say something which is there's an act there's an issue here in the food world of as we drive chefs to become rock star chefs of course those kinds of behaviors that we're glamorizing which are self-destructive are going to become more prevalent all of which is unrelated to food and i feel like there was an opportunity for both writers more kevin to say, huh, the food world has a real drug problem. And part of it's not because they're all addicts. It's because we, the foodies, who are consuming this media, are pushing them on towards this behavior in a more and more radical way. And we've seen a couple spectacular chef meltdowns in the last couple of years. And it's not just because they're bad people, because I don't think they are. I think it's because we push them towards it. Right. And that's, that's the problem I have with the fact of his book contract, which I'm not going to say is a problem with this book. I haven't read the book. Most people who've read it seem to think it's quite good. But there's a kind of predatory attitude in publishing to me that wants to get that bad boy thing at its most extreme and capture it in, you know, in, in between covers. And I mean, it's all Anthony Bourdain's fault. Right. No one had written a chef book about drugs before Anthony Bourdain, and now suddenly every chef memoir has to involve 
rock and roll and drugs and sex and craziness. And the ones that don't are sort of tepid old people biographies like, you know, Jacques Pepin writing his autobiography about being an apprentice, which I, of course, find more interesting because it's about technique and food and learning things and moving around the world. But there's no drugs and there's no sex and it's not very scandalous. So it doesn't rather, sell any copies. Right. You'd much rather read, you know, Jeremiah Tower having a threesome, you know, coked up or whatever. Exactly. The book that has no food in it, right? right. I, that book is incredibly boring. I've never managed to get more than two thirds of the way through it because it's who cares? I don't care if Random Chef A had an affair with Random Chef B while Random Chef C did a line of cocaine off their 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 bellies. I don't care. It doesn't make any difference. Actually, one of the things I loved in the United States of Arugula is that uh, apparently Spago originally had like sort of mirrored tile in the bathrooms, and Wolfgang Puck noticed that it was getting all scratched up, and he couldn't figure out why. And someone finally had to take him aside and explain what you use a razor for with cocaine and why you do that on a mirror. And, you know, his, his little Austrian eyes are just wide at, uh, you know, really? People do that? But Wolfgang Puck's book clearly wouldn't sell very many copies right. because he doesn't know what cocaine is. Right. And, I mean, that's part of chef's food becoming a lifestyle brand. And I get that. The way we look at chefs is very different than the way it was 20 years ago. But I think, I like to think, that maybe we've reached the apotheosis of this with Brandon. And if nothing else, he can teach us this, where we've, if we have two values, if we have food and we have craziness and... When we had someone like Anthony Bourdain where the food craziness quotient was relatively in equivalency, so then it was kind of fun, but there was also food there because Kitchen Confidential has tons of great food in it. As the craziness number goes up and the food number goes down, my hope is that we've reached the limit where we now have almost no food at all and enormous amounts of craziness. And at some point, you're just writing a memoir about addiction and you might as well not have been a chef, in which case you can take it out of the food literature section of the bookstore and we can move on with our lives. But it's once again, all I'll say is I think that that's, it's a function of the same thing, right? Once again, I wouldn't be annoyed at the fact that there's so much stuff covering Brandon if the media landscape was bigger and I could go along reading about interesting food things. But when there is a limited number of media outlets and they all cover the same thing, you can't escape what you're not interested in. I have absolutely no personal animus towards the man. In fact, he and I have done some great stories together. He's been really nice to me at times. I like to think I've been nice to him at times. And as soon as his restaurant opens, I will take my car and I will make the road trip up there and I will document it and I'll give my honest opinion about it because I don't think he's going to hire a PR company to give me free meals. But I really hope it works. I'm the biggest farm-to-table geek in the world. If someone can make an actual farm-to-farm-to-table restaurant economically viable, I will be the first person to shout it to the stars. But cook some food. Thank you for listening to Airwaves Full of Bacon. And thanks to Chris Curran, Benjamin Schiller, and Dave Andrews of Homestead, Dan Schleifer, and Anthony Todd. I'll be back with something in a few weeks, so if you like this, please go to iTunes and subscribe. It's free and the best way to encourage me and to make sure that you don't miss the next, almost certainly less depressing episode. If you can't find it at iTunes, find the link and other cool stuff from me at skyfullofbacon.com. Music was by Kevin McLeod. I'm Michael Gebert, and this was episode one. <laughs>